you got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we'll be in verse 39 or 29 this morning. I apologize. Uh, we've been in Corinthians since January. Uh, we've got three weeks left. We'll finish it up the, the, the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving. And so this morning we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 29 through 34. Go ahead, Jim. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for your word, and thank you for what it shows us. Father, I thank you uh, that you are alive and that you've risen again. Uh, and that, Father, because you are alive, that now has practical consequences uh, for our life here and now. And so I pray today is that we look at this text, that we would see that. Uh, and that, Father, you, you would show us that, that because, of, uh, because you are alive, uh, that um, baptism means something, that suffering means something, that sanctification and growing to be like Jesus means something. And that's all because you're not dead, but you're alive. Uh, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you today, Father, as the gospel is preached, I pray that you would change hearts and lives, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Like I said, we've been in Corinthians since January, and, and as we've looked at this book, the thing that we've seen over and over again is, is Paul's addressing this church, and he's, he's bringing up issues in the life of the church, and then showing them how the gospel addresses each one of these issues. And the final issue that Paul has been talking about in, in chapter 15 is the issue of the resurrection. And so you have people in the church that are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's been doing is systematically working through saying, well, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, if he's not alive, then therefore there's consequences for each and every one of us as Christians. And last week what Paul did was he explained what was going to happen upon Jesus' return. And so what he said was Jesus has risen from the dead, so he's the first fruits. He's the guarantee that because of his resurrection, you can guarantee on our resurrection one day when Jesus returns. And then he breaks down the order of events. He says Jesus is coming back. When Jesus comes back, the last enemy that will defeat it on that day is death. That he will conquer death, he will win. That those who are in Christ Jesus will rise again, they'll receive their glorified bodies, and at that point Jesus will turn around and hand the kingdom to God the Father, the one who has put all things under Jesus' feet, and Jesus will then submit himself to the Father. And then we will reign and rule with Jesus Christ forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. And today what Paul does is, is he continues that same thought. So Paul's continuing to, to remind them that Jesus is alive, that he's not dead. And what he does today is he shows us that if Jesus is dead, if there was no resurrection uh, of, of Jesus Christ, then that has practical significance for our lives here and now. And he looks at three areas in particular that he wants us to see. He looks at the area of, of baptism or the area of the sacraments. He looks at suffering and he looks at sanctification. 
So look with me, if you will, in verse 29, right? I tell you what, let's back up so we can get a little context. Let's go to uh, uh, verse 25. We'll start right there. He's speaking of Jesus. It says that he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So in other words, if Christ has not been raised, if he was not the first fruits, as he said last week, then there's practical consequences, and in particular, when it comes to the sacraments. All right? Now, let me just explain something. When I say sacraments, immediately we go, oh, Catholic, okay? That's not necessarily true, okay? Sacrament just refers to a sign or a symbol. So if you're a Protestant, you have a sacrament. You have two sacraments. We believe in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are our two sacraments. Those are our two signs or symbols that we celebrate and that we participate in. And so what Paul's talking about right here in verse 29 is the sacrament of baptism. Now, there are about 30 or 40 interpretations of this verse in particular right here. And there is so much debate on what Paul means in verse 29. Um, and so, so what I would tell you is this, okay? Let me, let, me, let me explain a few things to you. There are some things in the Bible that are unclear, but that doesn't mean they are untrue, okay? You follow me on that? There are some things in the Bible that are unclear, but it doesn't mean they're untrue. Paul already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we see dimly, Right, That not everything is clear yet because we're marked and clouded by sin. We can't understand everything. And that one day when the perfect comes, meaning when Jesus comes back, the scales will fall from our eyes and we will see everything clearly. All right? so, so there are some things that are unclear, but it doesn't mean that they're untrue. Right? Peter, who was trained by Jesus, who's considered the leader of the apostles, and he wrote two books of the Bible, said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. He says, And count the patience of our, uh, patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, referring to his letters, that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So what Peter's saying right there is, hey, listen, you know, I barely got an undergrad in history. I don't have any seminary. I'm not that bright. But uh, that Paul, he's smart, right? S-M-R-T, smart guy, okay? And so even Paul writes some things that even I, Peter, don't understand, Okay, so he's just telling us that, hey, if you ever read Paul's letters and you go, what in, the, what, what in the world? It's okay. Even Peter did the same thing and said, I don't understand everything that Paul said. Paul was on a whole nother level. So the important thing to remember is that not everything is clear in the scriptures, but what we must understand to be saved is very, very clear. It's very clear. So this passage right here, verse 29 may be unclear, but it doesn't mean it's not true. 
So, so I'm going to teach you a really fancy word, right? It's called per, uh, perspicuity. Perspicuity. That word means that when you're reading a Bible, if you have something that's unclear, you interpret it in light of what is clear in the Scriptures. Okay? So those verses that are less clear, we look at those and we interpret those in light of the ones that are clear. So we don't build a, a doctrine, okay? And, and let me explain doctrine to you because there's a lot of ignorance on the word doctrine, right? I have people tell me all the time, well, I don't believe in doctrine. I don't need none of that doctrine. No, no, you do need doctrine, okay? Doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teachings that is faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Doctrine is important. You need doctrine, okay? So we don't build a doctrine then on a text that is unclear. That's what cults do. So they'll take one text or one verse and then they'll build an entire system of theology around it. So I'm going to use a great example. The Mormon church has taken this verse right here and they have built an entire doctrine around this verse. So what they've said is that if you have an ancestor who died without learning about the restored Mormon gospel, then that ancestor can be baptized by proxy in the temple, and then you can, they can join you in heaven one day, all based off of this verse. So if you get on your computer when you go home tonight, and you'll go to familysearch.org, that is a website that is ran by the Mormon church, right? They have a partnering organization, you may have heard of it, ancestry.com, Right, that is being ran by the Mormons. The Mormons have the largest database of genealogy in the known world. And the reason is, is so that you can go back through there and find out that great aunt Myrtle wasn't baptized into the Mormon faith. And so you better get up to the temple and get baptized so she can get up to the celestial heaven and start making babies, right? See? That's what happens when you take an unclear verse and you build an entire doctrine around it. So, to understand this verse, let's look at what the Bible says. First off, Hebrews 9.27 says this. It says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So you die, you get judged, you go to heaven or hell. That's it. The way you get to heaven is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing it is the gift of God. So you earn nothing, you contribute nothing but the sin that required your salvation in the first place, and Jesus is the one who does all the work, and we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, all right? So we personally trust in Jesus. So folks, listen, you're not saved by proxy. The line to get into heaven one day will be single file, okay? We're all going to be lined up, Bubbles in her mouth, waiting to get in. That's what's going to happen. You don't get to bring somebody with you. They have to make their own decision. So Paul's not advocating here for you to be baptized by proxy. And so again, there's many interpretations to this verse. I'm going to give you the one that I feel like fits the best. You could go pull up commentaries and different translations, and people would probably have different arguments, but here's the one I think fits the best. The Greek word for behalf is the word huper. Huper which that word has a dozen different meanings, literally 12 different meanings in the Greek, Greek for the word behalf, for huper. But one of the meanings could mean because of or on account of the dead. So what we think that Paul could be referring to here are dead believers 
whose lives were a persuasive testimony in leading others to be baptized. So maybe some of you had godly grandparents, a godly grandmother, a grandfather who lived their life for Jesus and on their deathbed pleaded with their kids and their grandkids to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so because of the way grandma or grandpa lived their life, that was a persuasive testimony on you as a grandchild or you as a kid. And so as a result, you said, you know what? If grandma lived for Jesus, this Jesus thing has to be real. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And then you're baptized because of what Jesus has done, right? That, that could be what Paul's referring to. But, but the broad question, or the bigger point is this, is that he's been arguing in this chapter that if you don't believe in the resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And he, like everyone else, just belongs in one category. He's just a dead man. So if Jesus is just dead, what's the point of being baptized for someone who is just another dead guy? What what was the point of you saying, well, Grandma trusted in Jesus. I'm going to go trust in Jesus too because Grandma just got baptized for a dead guy too. So that's all that you did. See, what value, Paul says, does the sacrament of baptism have is Jesus is not alive but dead. So in other words, whenever we fill this thing up and we do baptisms, it would just be a stupid, silly ritual that we did. We just got somebody a nice warm bath. That's it. And I get to put on waders and look funny. That's all it is. But Jesus is alive, is what Paul's saying. So that means that baptism, it means that the Lord's Supper, they're not empty rituals, that these things are pregnant with meaning when we go to the Lord's table, right? They remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for the remission of our sins, that when we trust in that message, we are then baptized, signifying our death with Christ, our being raised from death to life. It's, a, it's significant because it's pointing to a new spiritual life, but then it's pointing you further down the road to the day when we will be raised again in a physical body to be with the Lord forever. See, baptism is the gospel pictured and promised and it's held out to everyone who believes so that when you trust in Christ, the thing baptism signifies becomes yours. So you pass from death to life. So in other words, really what Paul's saying in verse 29 is that baptism matters because Jesus has risen again, because Jesus is alive. If he was just another dead guy, it would be a stupid thing to do. But because he's alive, it has weight, and it means something. Verse 30. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, all right? So if Jesus isn't alive, Paul says, first off, baptism, it's just an empty ritual. It's just something stupid that we do. And if Jesus isn't alive, then Paul says, then what's the point of suffering? What's the point of enduring hardship on this earth if Jesus is dead? It's just a cruel God or, or maybe nothing up there at all that's just allowing us to walk through this earth and walk through difficulty and hard times. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if Jesus is, is dead, then why am I killing myself? Why am I pouring myself out, preaching, and pastoring, and planting churches, and enduring all manner of sufferings if I'm just doing it for a dead guy? In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28, Paul talks about the things that he endured. Look at what he says. He says, five times 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, Paul says right here that I die daily, meaning I'm putting my life on the line daily for the sake of the gospel. When he says he's fighting wild beasts, it doesn't mean he was thrown into the Colosseum, okay, because he was a Roman citizen. That probably wouldn't have happened. Paul's using a metaphor there to describe hostile crowds and riots. Remember when he's writing the book of 1 Corinthians, he's in Ephesus. And if you go to Acts chapter 19, you can read about the fight that broke out there that, that, that was really, really dangerous for Paul. So he's, re, he's referring to the wild mobs that he encounters over preaching the gospel. He's making a very strong point. He's saying if Jesus is not raised, if he's just another dead guy, then why do I continue to put my life on the line? Why do I continue to endure suffering? Why do I continue to preach? I mean, what's the point of all of it if it's just for another dead guy, right? I mean, I think us pastors can relate to that verse. I mean, the bulk of us would say, what's the point of preaching? What's the point of pouring ourselves out on the stage every week, being criticized and neat-nicked if Jesus isn't alive? I can promise you there's a lot better jobs out there for my mental health. There's a lot better jobs out there for my family than pastoring. There are. But we do it because Jesus is alive. We believe that what we're doing is important. We believe that what we preach and say every week has meaning. That what we're doing is trying to tell people about Jesus so that one day they can be with Jesus forever. That they can find meaning in this life that's not found in all the things we chase, but it's found in Jesus. Paul says if he isn't alive, then what's the point? I mean, why bother at all? He says if he's just dead, then let's eat and drink and let's just die. Because if all that's waiting for us on the other side is just a grave for worms to come and eat us, then why endure suffering at all? I mean, why walk through difficulties? Why press on in the midst of suffering? Just grab a bottle and numb the pain because that's all that it would be good for. Live for pleasure, seek to minimize the pain, and do everything we can to get away from it. If Jesus is dead, that's the only hope that any of us in this room have. But Paul says that since Christ has been raised, we press on. We press on knowing that our suffering is not meaningless. Brothers and sisters, some of you may need to hear that. No matter what you're walking through, it is not meaningless that your difficulty and your pain, that God is doing something with that. He's using that. Paul would talk about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. I love what Paul says. Paul says, but we have these treasures and jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul says we're afflicted in every way but not driven to despair We're perplexed, but not driven to despair, sorry. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says, for we who live are always being given over to death 
for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing, and listen to this, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Do you see what he's saying? is that we endure sufferings for the sake of Jesus Christ. We endure sufferings knowing that it's doing something. We endure it because as we endure suffering and point others to Jesus, others see the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they come to know Jesus. Paul says, we're doing all of this for your sake. And then look what he says. This is one of my favorite parts. Paul says, because we're doing all of this for Jesus, because he's alive, what's he say? So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then I love this line, for this light momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient, they're fleeting, they're gonna fall away. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. See what he's getting at right there? Is that my suffering's doing something. Every hurt, every difficulty, God is using it for his glory. Because Jesus has raised all the pains, all the afflictions on this earth, they're worth it. Right? What's that old song say? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Right? Because I know, oh, oh, right, who holds the future. And life is worth the living because he lives. Paul says, I can keep going. I can press on, and guess what? I'll endure more than I'm enduring now if it means that I can take one or two more out of darkness and into the light and point them to Jesus Christ. This light momentary affliction. Folks, if this is the worst it gets, imagine how amazing it'll be when Jesus comes back. That's amazing to me that Paul can say that. Light momentary affliction. (laughs) Folks, suffering only makes sense if the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ has triumphed because one day it's all going to be over with. Verse 33. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. So if Christ is dead, the sacraments are worthless. Just a stupid, dumb ritual. Suffering's worthless. It's just a cruel God allowing us to hurt and go through pain with with nothing promised on the other side. And finally, Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, then your sanctification is worthless. So remember, sanctification begins after salvation. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It never ends until you die or Jesus comes back. Right? It's a long dirt road straight uphill. It's a lot of fun. So Paul's saying, listen, if Christ hasn't been raised, then what's the point of our sanctification? I mean, what's the point of growing to be more and more like a dead guy? If he's not alive, then why are we striving to be like him? Why are we striving for a day when he's going to come back if he's dead? So what Paul's trying to get you to see here, back to a point I made earlier, theology, doctrine, they matter. So, So simply put, theology is the study of God. So what you believe about God is theology. Doctrine, 
again, is the summary of the Bible's teachings that's faithful to the Bible and it's useful for life. So what Paul's doing here at the end of this section is he's saying what we believe about God matters because it affects how we live and how we worship. So if you look at at the Corinthian church and their theology and their doctrine, if you look at the application of their theology, what was it leading to? An immoral life, right? They were drunkards. They were living in all kinds of debauchery. We've worked through the book. We've seen it. They're fighting and arguing in the church over leaders and who they liked the best, right? They have men sleeping with temple prostitutes on their way home from work and then celebrating that, saying, freedom in Christ, man, no big deal. It's just what everybody's doing. You had a man in the church sleeping with his stepmom, and nobody in the church was willing to do anything about it. Instead, they were celebrating it. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table. They were marginalizing the poor and pushing them out of their worship services. See, there's a connection between what you believe and how you live. There's a connection between what you believe and how you live. And so what Paul means right there is when he says bad company ruins good morals, right? Maybe you've quoted that to your kids before. And and, and that's kind of right whenever you tell them that. But really what Paul does is say this, is that people who think wrongly invariably behave wrongly. Wrong behavior comes from wrong thinking. So the bad company was teaching bad theology, and that bad theology was corrupting good morals. See, what you believe matters because it informs how you live your life. So, so, so let's just do a little experiment in our part of the world, shall we? For too many years, what's been preached and, and, and what's still being preached in a lot of pulpits all over the panhandle of Texas is a weak watered-down gospel. Light on Jesus, light on the scriptures, but it's all about making me feel good, baby. It's all about self-help. It's all about making you comfortable on this earth for an eternity in hell. That's the truth. And it's being preached in pulpits all across the panhandle today. Three points in a cloud of dust, usually taken out of context. Heard a sermon recently on the radio. Joe and I were listening to it. 2 Timothy 2.20, where Paul talks about their vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use in the home. And the whole sermon revolved around, well, you got a potty in your house, and the potty's for dishonorable things. But then you got a coffee cup, and that's for honorable things, right? Because you got to have that coffee. And the sermon went something like this. In order for you to get closer to God, we need to simplify our lives. We just need to cut out all the clutter, and then we can get closer to God. Folks, if you go back and read 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's talking about false teachers in the church. And in chapter 2, verse 19, the verse before that, what Paul says is that, listen, there's false teachers in the church, but there's still true believers in the church. And Paul says, God knows who the true believers are. So therefore, in the church, there are some people of dishonorable use. That means they look like they're Christians sitting in the pew, and they say all the right things, but they're going to hell. And there's some people in the church that they know and love Jesus and they're living for him. And so because they know and love Jesus, they're purifying their lives. They're pursuing on Jesus. They're, they're throwing off all the things in their life that says, I want Jesus, not all this other junk. See, that's a lot more difficult passage to preach than, well, you got a potty in your house and go potty in the potty and get rid of all the dishonorable things. That's not what he's saying. But see, a result of this thinking, here's what it's led to. 
It's led to a lifestyle that says, I acknowledged Jesus at VBS when I was seven years old, where I went to the big revival whenever I was in high school. I tipped my hat to him and I said, I love you, Lord. You're my savior. Now I'm going to go live my life however I want. And so as long as I'm a good person, I say the right things, yes, sir, no, sir. I teach my kids to say yes, sir, no, sir. And I vote the right way. God's good with me. But then when we look at our lives, there's no genuine love for God. There's no desire to pursue Him. There's no desire to grow in holiness. We're perfectly content to look like everyone else, raise our kids like everyone else, spend our money like everyone else, use our free time like everyone else. And the reason is, is we have bad theology. We forget that when Jesus calls a man, He calls a man to come and die. And he didn't die so you could live however you wanted. He died so that you might be made more and more like him. He rose again, securing your salvation and your eternity with him, right? We sang about it in that song. Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. That means I want to do anything and everything I can to be more like Jesus to throw off all the junk in my life that's hindering me from being like Jesus. That it's not a a tip my cap to Jesus, now I'm going to go live however I want. No, it's a daily waking up and dying to yourself and running back to Jesus. See, what Paul's getting at then is this, is that since Jesus is alive, then that has practical implications for your sanctification. It means that you belong to another kingdom. A kingdom that Jesus is bringing to us. And at the final harvest, you'll see that kingdom at last. You will be a part of that kingdom at last. And since you're called to another kingdom, you're called to live here in this world in such a way that's apparent to others that you don't belong here. That you belong somewhere else. That you've been bought and paid for. So Paul says, listen, Corinthians, don't go on sinning and acting like you're a Christian. You should be ashamed of yourselves that you claim the name of Christ, but you're not living for him. That you claim the name of Christ, but you continue on in all this debauchery. So stop living as if your old self still defines you. No. Paul says you died. You were buried. And you were raised with Christ. Now act like it. So brothers and sisters, here's the point of what he's getting at. Is that if Christ is dead... We should be pitied. People should feel sorry for us. Because that means everything we do in here on Sunday morning is just stupid. Our rituals of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're empty. They're meaningless. Suffering is a complete and total waste of time because it doesn't mean anything. And there's nothing better coming for us on the other side of it. There's no point in growing in holiness because Jesus is dead. But what Paul wants you to see is that Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's returning. And if we're in him, not in Adam, but we're in Christ, we shall live too. So that means that when we gather, the sacraments have meaning. That they're filled with promise. They're filled with hope. That Christ is alive and he's been raised and we will be raised with him. That one day all the hurt and all the junk that you walk through, it's going to be no more. And it'll be so much more beautiful on the other side of that for everything you've endured him. The Lord's Supper one day will be eaten again with the Lord himself.
Suffering can be something that's no longer to be avoided, but something through which we persevere for the glory of Christ, knowing that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And sanctification reminds you and I, we're citizens of another kingdom. And we're called to live the resurrection life, showing those who look at us, hear us, that how we spend our money, give to the church, support missions, endure hardship in Jesus' name, witness to our friends, showing those, all those things, that we don't belong here, that we belong somewhere else, and that we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where we'll be with Jesus forever and ever. So if you would, pray with me this morning. Father, I I thank you for this day and I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you that that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And because Jesus is alive, that has practical significance for our lives here and now. That when we gather to celebrate the the birth of a new believer through baptism, Father, that that it means that, that that person is being buried with you but raised again to new life, signifying a new spiritual life, but also the future resurrection when they will be given a new body the father's suffering although as hard as it is on this earth and how difficult it is and all the things that we walk through it's not meaningless it's doing something in us it's producing character in us it's producing perseverance it's showing us that father there's so much more coming on the other side of this So that one day when we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face, we, like Paul, will be able to say that, man, that that stuff I walked through on earth was just a light, momentary affliction. And Father, since Jesus is alive, sanctification is important. That that it's not just a, hey, I tip my hat to him one time. No, it's a daily dying to self, renewing our minds, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and becoming more and more like Jesus. It's showing the world around us that we don't belong here, but we belong somewhere else. So Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room that Father, they would be encouraged in the midst of their suffering, that Father, they'd be challenged in their sanctification. And I pray ultimately if there's anyone in here that does not know you, that today as the gospel was proclaimed, in the life of Jesus Christ, live for us. His death in our place and his resurrection held out, Father, that you have saved hearts and souls and you've called men and women to yourself. Thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you that Jesus wins and that this whole thing is headed somewhere. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.